Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, an hour of media analysis, beginning with a returning guest, Professor Emerita from Fordham University, Robin Anderson. We'll talk about her latest piece from Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Beijing's movie war propaganda, and Washington's. We'll discuss the latest uproar from the U.S. press about Chinese propaganda films, but we'll also talk about the Pentagon's long history with Hollywood, making propaganda films of their own. We'll also continue our conversation with Robin Anderson, looking at the latest Project Censored book and the chapter she did on news abuse, false balance in media coverage undermines democracy. Later on the program, we're joined once again by professors Nicholas Baham III and Nolan Higdon. We'll talk about their new book, A Breakthrough Study on an Exploding Medium, Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Era of Surveillance Capitalism. An hour on the media on the Project Censored show coming up. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, in the first segment, we welcome back to the program Robin Anderson who is Professor Emerita at Fordham University and an award-winning author and media commentator. Robin is currently co-editor of the Rutledge Focus book series on media and humanitarian action. Her latest book, Media, Central American Refugees and the U.S. Border Crisis, is available on paperback. Robin Anderson is also a longtime Project Censored judge for our annual books and our top 25 stories and also author for the last couple of years of our chapter on news abuse and propaganda. So on today's program, we welcome Robin Anderson back to discuss not only her work with us and the news abuse chapter in Project Censored State of the Free Press 2022, our latest book, but also Robin writes for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, among other organizations, and she has a stellar piece that came out at the end of last year called Beijing's Movie War Propaganda, and Washington's. And so today in this segment of the program with Robin Anderson, we're going to talk about all things propaganda and news abuse. And again, couldn't think of a better person to talk to about these issues. Robin Anderson, welcome back to the program. It's great to be here, Mickey. Thanks. So Robin, tell us about your newest piece with FAIR on China movie war propaganda. This is very interesting happening on the backdrop, of course, on the almost like a redux Cold War, a lot of harsh language out of the Biden administration against China, Russia, etc. So the backdrop of this makes your analysis on what's happening here in you know, this entertainment complex or military entertainment complex, as it were, I think it makes it more fascinating and, of course, a lot more important in a lot of ways. Can you talk to us about the general thesis of the piece you did for FAIR? I'll start by just agreeing with what you said about China. We we need to do so many things together with China. Certainly global warming, labor issues would be wonderful if we worked together with activists there. Instead, we seem to be very belligerent on all kinds of cultural, political, economic, and military avenues, which is taken us down a road that I don't think is very safe or uh, wise. So I was reading through the New York Times, came across a piece about a Chinese movie. 
And what struck me so much about the Battle of Shangjin and the Times' take on it was everything that was in that article in the New York Times criticizing the Chinese authorities saying that they're really intervening in popular culture now and this movie is war propaganda. Of course, they were very mad that it was the largest grossing non-English language film of all time. So the Chinese have caught up with us in terms of doing blockbuster, and they've actually admitted, some of the filmmakers, that they learned a lot from U.S. blockbuster films. But it just struck me that everything that they criticized that movie for, we do and have done for years and years, very much accelerated in the 21st century. For a hundred years, I mean, you go all the way back to the origins of Hollywood. Propaganda has always been part of it. And I think that the ire that we're seeing coming out of the New York Times is an expression of, hey, that's our turf. And of course, the Chinese have been watching those movies, I guess, and they they know how to make, uh, in many cases, these kind of propaganda films. We don't like the competition, right, Robin Anderson? That's right. That some of the media descended into the battle of the box office themes, right? Well, gosh, the U.S. used to just be able to market so many films in China, and now China's taking their own market over. My, how dare it. So for our listeners that aren't aware about this film, what exactly is this Chinese film about? The very basic facts about the film, most of corporate media managed to narrate to us. So they said, this is a film about the battle between November and December, 1950, that MacArthur and his troops and some UN forces, they got up to the Chinese border, little known to the American public because the Korean War is the war that is forgotten because of this reason. MacArthur tried to go into China. He was told, faulty intelligence, that there would be only 30,000 Red Army troops on the border of China, they were met with 120,000 and they were greatly outnumbered and they had to retreat south and they went all the way back to the demarcation line. And so really at that point, so we're talking in one year, the war should have been over. So that's what it depicts. What is so fascinating about the Times coverage of the film is it says things like, this film makes heroes and martyrs out of these people. Isn't that the genre of a blockbuster film as if this is insane? And then they actually admit that the basic story that I just narrated is what is told. On military.com, they actually managed to say, this is a heroic tale of being terribly outnumbered and finding safety, rather than this was a terrible defeat after we bombed the heck out of the whole country. And the only way that the military can get away with saying that is because what I point out in the, in the article is that big journalism has never narrated a coherent story of what we did in the Korean War between 1950 and 1953. It's mostly disappeared. It gets short shrift in the history books and classes. Most people that might remember anything, even pop culture allusions to it, would be the TV show MASH. Those were the kind of depictions of it. No real discussion of the massacres at Nogunri, a Korean War version of Milai. I mean, the atrocities going on in the Korean War are legion, yet not known well here in the United States. So how dare another country tell that story from their own perspective is basically what the New York Times is griping about. And actually narrate it as it actually happened. That's all the film does. 
it's not just the overtly militaristic films that the Pentagon and the government is working with Hollywood allegedly to fact check. You know, the CIA has a film liaison. Most people don't really understand these kinds of connections between Washington and Hollywood. And in your piece, you definitely pull out some concrete examples and sort of how could people in the United States not notice the overt jingoistic nature of the propaganda coming from some of our most popular films. Right. And the Times is very quick to point out that as the authorities are really intervening in popular culture in China now, we have been doing it for so long. I use a lot of the interviews in the terrific new film that's come out by Roger Stahl called Theaters of War. And you have really important journalists and also props who've been looking into this as well, such as Trisha Jenkins. And she says, you know why Phil Strubb and the media liaison office of the Pentagon is so popular in Hollywood? Because they've got the toys. They've got the tanks. They've got the helicopters. They've got the jets. They've got all of that stuff including the crew members and extras, and they've got the bases, and you can go there and film all of this stuff. Then you get another scholar, and he says, yeah, you know, but the price is you've got to show your scripts, and it's in the contract, and they get to bowdlerize them. So anything that doesn't follow a military ethos, anything that shows the military hierarchy to have any flaws whatsoever, you can't show any kind of rogue soldier or opposition or any kind of basic reality of what war really means, which is about killing people. It has to be this exciting, glorified, big screen battles that basically hide what really goes on in war. They highlight American exceptionalism. They all go through the mythos of American exceptionalism. They have to go through that lens. That's right. In the New York Times, the Battle of Shenzhen, there's a little Chinese boy and he's kind of almost saluting. He's got one of the Red Army caps on and he's in front of one of the big film posters. And that's supposed to illustrate the very negative effect on Chinese children and, and youth that this film will have. And so what I do in the piece is Okay, let's look at recruitment. What what are these films really doing? We've got a number of films that have been completely appropriated and worked on by the Pentagon and, and appropriate for recruitment. One was Act of Valor, which had nine active duty SEALs in it that originated as a recruitment advertisement. And then they said, oh, this is really fun. Let's turn it into a feature film. And it, when it was there. But the one that I really have the most problem with, because I don't know, Mickey, maybe because it was such a good film and you really wanted to like Brie Larson in Captain Marvel, but she is a superhero with supernatural powers. Her body is elevated into space and she can zap alien spacecraft. But it's so ironic because that is really a recruitment film. Because the Air Force was down in their pilots by 25%. But it doesn't tell you that only 3% of women can be a fighter pilot. And also the Pentagon and the people who help Hollywood design these films, they say, we're better at it. We, we can tell you what we really do. We can show you the behind the scenes and it's accurate and it represents us like we're real. And I think, well, Brie Larson's out there in space and she's got supernatural powers and she's zapping alien spaceships. So it's not really that authentic. 
If it was authentic, then you would see Brie Larson being sexually assaulted. That's another point you bring up here is that so many women in the military experience sexual assault. There's so many other angles here that Hollywood just glosses right over in many cases. And again, these kind of films, whether it's Black Hawk Down, Argo, Zero Dark Thirty, all the glorification of through CSI and CIA glorified in the popular culture. In this case, you're also suggesting that the military claims that its interest and involvement in Hollywood films is accuracy and fact-checking, when in fact it's clearly more about propaganda and recruitment. It's totally about propaganda and recruitment. And you're right to point out the sexual abuse and harassment part. And in the Air Force itself, in 2018, just before the film came out, 15% of women reported sexual assault, not just harassment, sexual assault in the Air Force. So it's, I think there was the Air Force Academy. So that's what these blockbuster films that make war so exciting, it hides that reality too. And everything about the aspect of being within the, the, the military entertainment complex hides the reality in all, in many different levels. Well, and, and Robin Anderson, I mean, again, these are often very powerful films. They're very well done. They're extraordinarily high budget. They get the top actors, so forth. And they particularly are geared toward younger people. They are glorifying, in many cases, jingoism, violence as heroic and valorous and so forth. Definitely recruitment tools. That's the other aspect of Captain Marvel is that at Nellis Air Force Base, they did a flyover. They interviewed young recruits and they said, she's one of us. They actually said that Captain Marvel was actually a member of the military. We claim her. Everybody's got an origin story. And hers is the Air Force. Very powerful recruitment. And of course, the military had failed to keep their pilots because they are leaving for the private sector and commercial jetliners. And they were actually paying people to stay in the military and that didn't work. So they thought, let's use this film. And use it, they do, did, and will likely continue. You know, it's also part of both corporate and Pentagon performative wokeness. We have the African-American Secretary of Defense from Raytheon. It's, well, look, he's an African-American, so the bombs will, will be more equitable. The female fighter pilot, we're up with the times at the 21st century. Those kind of messages are also part of these films that somehow, because the protagonists are not white males, it's somehow some massive leap or advanced kind of consciousness. Completely forgetting that, particularly in Act of Valor, for example, but in many of these films, the enemies are terrorists, they are people of color. They are people of color. For whatever country or whatever region of the world we're, we're needing to demonize next. They are people of color. They are women. If we think of the type of military actions that the film supports and prevents us from looking into, such as special forces, the night raids, the drone bombings, these have horrible effects on people around the world, mostly people of color and many, many women. I'd like to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Project Censored show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking right now with media scholar Robin Anderson. I just want to do a quick reminder, too. The film that Robin alluded to earlier is a new film that'll be out very soon this year by the Media Education Foundation, great organization. Roger Stahl's film is called Theaters of War, How the Pentagon and CIA Took Hollywood. 
So we're definitely going to be looking forward to that. And we are talking about Robin Anderson's recent piece in Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, FAIR.org online. That piece was called Beijing's Movie War Propaganda and Washington's. After this brief musical break, we're going to shift gears. We're still going to talk about propaganda, but we're going to talk about Robin Anderson's contribution to the latest Project Censored book on news abuse and other sideism or both sidesism and false equivalency in media. So please stay tuned. We'll continue our conversation after this brief musical break. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment today, we are speaking with media scholar Robin Anderson. She is Professor Emerita at Fordham University, an award-winning author and media commentator. Her forthcoming book is Death in Paradise, How a Popular TV Show Tapped into an Ancient Narrative. Robin Anderson, of course, writes for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting and is a contributor to Project Censored for years, including being a national judge. In this year's Project Censored book, Robin Anderson again penned our news abuse chapter. And news abuse is a specific term Peter Phillips, our former director came up with to describe the kind of propaganda and spin and deception that we see in many forms of journalism. And in chapter four of the book this year, False Balance in Media Coverage Undermines Democracy. Robin Anderson, you talk about news abuse and the phenomenon of other sideism or both sides. We saw a lot of that in the Trump era about both sides committing alleged violence at these civil rights and social justice protests. We saw it with the George Floyd case in Minnesota, the murder of George Floyd. You mentioned several other areas where this is a real phenomenon. I mean, this is an ongoing issue of deception and propaganda in American media. So, Robin Anderson, tell us a little bit about the chapter here and about how false balance in media undermines our democratic process. Let's go back to the January 6th insurrection. What we found after that, as Biden came into his presidency, he was, I think, surprisingly more progressive than that some of us thought that he would be. He rolled back much of the anti-regulation about global warming. He rolled back some of the immigration right at first. I think we haven't made much progress there, but he also provided the American public with stimulus and really helped the kinds of things that are popular with the American public. And as the new Democratic president, with a lot of pressure from the left and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, most notably from Bernie Sanders' campaigns, he was forced to move a little bit away from the center and actually try to represent some of the desires of the American public. Instead of reporting on Biden's presidency and counteracting it to the Republicans who had just helped a violent insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, the likes of Jim Jordan, Ted Cruz, these people had all helped Trump rev the Proud Boy leadership into a violent insurrection. 
the way that they reported uh, on Biden's presidency, even in face of that, is to talk about the Republican Party as if it is a legitimate Republican Party, as if it's part of a democratic process, no different from the Democrats. And instead of meeting the needs of the American people and condemning Trump and the Republicans for sedition and trying to actually unseat a president who was duly elected in our country. Their main value and theme was bipartisanship. Biden needs to be successful in bringing everybody together and be and and these bills are all bipartisan and the republicans should have an equal say they're a legitimate political party and this happened and I write in the chapter about all of the topics you rounded up for the year voting rights particularly because we're right at the point of where voting rights is is again in the news and and Biden made the big speech we need to pass voting rights Republicans continue to gerrymander. They continue to put in the worst kinds of Jim Crow voting restrictions. And the media never talk about that. Well, there's this bill here and the Democrats like it, but the Republicans don't like it. They say it's federal overreach. This is about democracy. This is democracy against fascism, not both sidesing these two political parties. So you mentioned the magic word, both sidesing. That word is pervasive in your chapter because it's kind of the theme of how media continue to frame these things. For example, around voting rights, it's we need to protect the integrity of the voting systems. Well, if that's the case, we wouldn't have outsourced them to tech firms. We wouldn't have outsourced them to unaccountable entities. We'd make it easier for people to vote. We might have ranked choice voting. There's lots of things we could do if we were interested in election integrity. But it's true, as you point out, and this is something that needs to be repeated, is that the GOP has been tinkering around with elections for decades, including walking back at the Supreme Court of Voting Rights Act of 1965, gerrymandering, crowing endlessly about non-existent voting fraud or voter fraud, not to be confused with election fraud which also Trump and the GOP were claiming was rampant in the last round. Again, it's kind of interesting how they don't seem to be interested in it at all during the Trump administration. The GOP certainly wasn't interested in election integrity in 2000 or 2004. Let's get back to this both sidesing rift and move it into, say, the Black Lives Matter protest, because it was very clear during Trump's entire presidency that it was a both sidesing matter, that Black Lives Matter and Antifa were these violent thugs. And yeah, maybe there's some proud boys and white supremacists and people bearing tiki torches and pitchforks and weapons and running people over in cars, but both sides are doing it. Well, let's start with, finally, a study came out that showed that of all of the Black Lives Matter protests, 93% of them were peaceful. And that's not mentioning the 7% that were not peaceful and how it happened. And many times it was Proud Boys attacking them. Or police. Or police. So it was left up to, of course, alternative media. I'm remembering a common dream headline. Once again, police riot at Black Lives Matter protests. But corporate media led over and over again with violence at Black Lives Matter. Violence at Black Lives Matter and that Black Lives Matter were the ones that were causing the violence. And, and this, what's so fascinating is, if you remember after the January 6th mob attack, Biden came out and said, if Black Lives Matter had done this, they would have been treated much differently. No one dare call it a protest. Chuck Schumer came out and called it domestic terrorism, words that were quickly forgotten by corporate media and the mainstream. 
And shortly after that, we've got this both siding and it was all equivalent. If you go back and follow, whether it was happening in Charlottesville all the way through the George Floyd case and the, the surprising conviction of Chauvin, the surprising conviction of the police officer who was responsible for the death of George Floyd, this is all taking place while the FBI rebooted their COINTELPRO. And they actually had a black identity extremist program where they were actually targeting and trying to infiltrate and watch certain Black Lives Matter leaders, even though what you were just saying is that an overwhelming majority of people involved in these kinds of protests for civil rights and social justice were peaceful. Yet, we have known historical data about white supremacists, neo-Nazi groups, and others perpetrating violence, and yet the FBI spends more time and resources against groups like Black Lives Matter. It's really astounding, but then the media coverage loses all of that context, and they memory-hold the history of the FBI and COINTELPRO. And they memory-hold throughout the year the fact that the violence at the Capitol is completely tied to white supremacists, to the Turner Diaries, to all of the conspiracy theorists, which are also QAnon and Pizzagate, the Democrats are, are, are cannibalizing children in D.C. The big story really was how the media completely missed the insurrection. Though they were online, they were telling people what to do. They showed up with signs. They showed up in buses funded by Republican entrepreneurs everywhere, and they miss the story, and then they forget the story. And the other way that has become a real problem in corporate media is their lack of connecting the dots and putting things, things together and, and putting one thing next to the other that are related that you can't understand without a big picture. Let's look at QAnon and understand that and understand how it's connected to white supremacy and how it's connected to other things that we've been, been seeing with the Trumpites. The thing that you just said, I think, bears repetition, and that's the lack of connecting the dots, the lack of historical context, the surface-level operation of media from one sensational thing to another, driven to be divisive, looking to attract eyeballs. And so it's usually one sensational kind of thing after another with no depth or context again. And then they just move along. They shift through a couple of topics and then they repeat. We started our conversation about the war propaganda, the foreign policy propaganda. Notice how that's directly connected to a lot of the domestic propaganda and the domestic violence that we see perpetrated in the United States. Absolutely. And so the demonization of enemies of war, of people of color, um, is directly equivalent to the whipping up of white supremacy and the anti-Black sentiment of the patriot movement and the violent movement. These things are very connected. And as a matter of fact, a poll was done by, I think, the Washington Post and another organization that asked people involved in the, in the insurrection Republicans who supported the insurrection, what were you really thinking? Was it really stop the steal? And most of these people, they found it was white supremacy, primarily because they were racists and they don't like people of color. These are deep-seated things that need to be drawn out. And yet what corporate media does is obscure those connections over and over again. Right now, we're even as the January 6th investigation by Congress continues just a little less than half of the Republicans still believe that January 6th was not that violent. It was just kind of like another protest. 
media is contributing, corporate media is contributing by legitimating the Republican Party. They go on the Sunday morning talk shows, the likes of Jim Jones and Cruz, and they don't tell them these people incited this terrible riot and now forgetting that entirely. Those of us, you that have studied corporate media and propaganda for decades, what do you see changing? Do you really think that the corporate press is really going to change the way that they report about these things? They're all in rating spirals. They're all in downward spirals with ratings. Could the corporate media really build trust in the public by actually doing more real public interest journalism? Or will they continue this both sidesism, this other sideism? these false equivalencies, and keep chasing sensational headlines. It does look like we're heading for more of the latter than the former, Robin Anderson. You know, I'm thinking about the great book by our colleague Peter Phillips called Giants, and he engages C. Wright Mill's idea of the ruling elite. I think we've known for a long time that this media, this corporate media, now represents the ruling elite and has been for years. I think the reason it's more noticeable now and it has become so glaring to people like us who have been watching this for for decades is because we're in such moments of crisis. And as the corporate media chews wealth and power and corporations, primarily corporations over the American public, it becomes more and more glaring. We want Medicare for all. We need Medicare for all. We're in a pandemic. We're compelled to go back to work when we're putting our lives and workers on the line. We have no other alternative vision about the military other than that we need to feed the military uh, entertainment complex, preventing the rest of the media to report on what the American people are doing. They blame consumers and blame the public. At the same time, they refuse to report on what is happening in democracy, what we're doing, all the environmental actions that have taken place, all of the activism, all of the times we go into the street, these are not on that corporate media agenda. And I think these contradictions are just coming to an explosive head. Many of these things that the American public want, Medicare for all, time off when you have a baby, all of these things are popular. Voting rights was so popular with both conservatives and Democrats that the dark money coming out of the Koch brothers, as reported by Jane Mayers in The New Yorker, just completely didn't try to do anything with public opinion. They just said, we're going to block it in Congress. Let's just keep feeding these Congress people and ways to block this. And I think it's coming to a really important moment where we actually really need to rein in corporate actions, practices in terms of the military, in terms of the fossil fuel industry, or we won't be the society that we once were. And and I think that's what's coming. And Robin Anderson, I think we really need media scholars and critically media literate citizens to better decode this to better navigate and understand this and really empower people to go out and find independent news sources that are interested in transparent factual reporting and not this top-down managed corporate propaganda and these other kinds of elite agendas. And I do think people are becoming more and more aware of it. And I do think that's why they're turning away from corporate media, even out of just frustration to try to hear a different perspective and a different idea that they're just not hearing. Robin Anderson, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks once again for joining us. We were speaking earlier 
with Robin Anderson about Beijing's movie war propaganda and Washington's. And in this last segment here, we just talked about her contribution to the latest censored book on news abuse, false balance in media coverage undermines democracy. Robin Anderson, thanks for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Nikki, it was good to talk. Up next on the Project Censored show, we talk about a new book, The Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Era of Surveillance Capitalism. We'll be joined by scholars and authors Nicholas Baham III and Nolan Higdon. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we're going to talk about the on-fire medium of podcasting, but there is a brand new book, a stellar academic analysis of the podcasting medium that's coming out on Wiley Blackwell, released at the end of January. The book is called The Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Era of Surveillance Capitalism. Again, this is a very timely release, an academic analysis from two stellar media studies academics and professors. Dr. Nicholas Baham III is professor of ethnic studies at California State University, East Bay, where he teaches courses in black studies, genders, and sexualities in communities of color. Nick Baham's also on the board with us at Media Freedom Foundation. Nick Baham, welcome to the Project Censored Show. Thank you, Mickey. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, Nick. Next, we're going to introduce Dr. Nolan Higdon, who's a recurring guest on the Project Censored show, so our listeners are probably very familiar with Nolan. He's an author and university lecturer of history and media studies at California State University, East Bay. Nolan Higdon, welcome back to the Project Censored show. Good to be back. It always is good to hear from you, Nolan. Nolan, let's start with you here. The Podcaster's Dilemma. You and Nick Baham had a podcast of your own along the line. Why don't you talk to us about what pushed you into writing this particular book on decolonizing podcasters in the era of surveillance capitalism? It was actually quite like an interesting journey. I mean, I remember, I don't remember the year, but I remember when I first heard about podcasts, I sort of thought, who would ever spend three hours listening to like poorly recorded material? I, the idea did not entice me immediately. But over time, I kept getting recommendations from from students and friends and family members. And, and I started listening to podcasts and I, I found them really attractive. I stopped listening to music a lot in the car when I was jogging or whatever. I started listening to more podcasts. When cooking dinner, I'd put one on in the background. And um, eventually, um, Nick and I decided to create a podcast where we wanted to kind of offer alternative narratives to corporate news media. We had previously hosted the Project Central Radio show together a lot, and, and we went into the podcast space. And as we were there, one of the things we, we immediately realized is podcasters, not physically, but largely are, are a community. Um, they all have guests that, that have each other on their shows, and they all promote each other. And so we were, you know, trying to get to know other podcasters and it became very quickly apparent to us that there are a ton of podcasters out there, like so many podcasts, we couldn't wrap our mind around it. And Nick, to his credit, he really honed in on the idea that, wow, you know, in a lot of these podcast spaces, folks are using this space to decolonize themselves. They're exploring issues and narratives that would never be allowed in mass media or legacy media. And they're trying to draw in audiences who those those conversations speak to. 
and Nick is like, you know, one of the, just a curious, brilliant person who wants to know more. And he's like, you know, has anybody done any research on this? And so I did my, you know, traditional scholarly literature review and said, you know, man, no one's really looked at podcasters. They've looked at like how to use podcasting in the classroom. They've looked at how to create your own podcast, but nobody's actually looked at podcasters, the messages the community and those sorts of things. And, and from there, Nick proposed that, hey, why don't we do a study? Why don't we be the people to make the study we're, we're looking for? And that ended up being the genesis of the podcaster's dilemma. It is laid out like an academic study, of course, because it is, but the reading of it is very fluid. And, you know, in the beginning, you talk about meeting the hosts and you all surveyed and reviewed like a wide variety of different kinds of people in the podcast's digital space that are doing exactly what you just described, Nolan, using it to decolonize narratives. But you also warn about the direction that new media forms sometimes take as they get more and more co-opted and they become more of what they were originally intended to sort of displace. Nick Bayham, let's go to you. Can you give us an overview, general overview of the kind of analysis and things that come out of this book for you? So on one level, what the book attempts to do is it attempts to link podcasting with the history of revolutionary radio. In fact, the kind of transition that Nolan and I made from radio to podcasting is reflective of the origin of podcasting, which comes out of uh, this resurgence phase in, in community radio that starts in the 1990s. We built our analysis on uh, Fanon's critique of the voice of fighting Algeria in 1954 in the Algerian revolution against the French and also other forms where radio morphed into podcasting. Like for example, the um, Gezi Park protests in 2013 in Turkey, where you see a blend of radio and Twitter and other forms of digital media. So that's the first thing to understand that podcasting comes out of revolutionary radio. So this is a natural thing for people who are seeking to define themselves outside of colonial norms. The other thing we did was we tried to set up a way for people to understand different forms of decolonizing podcasters. Podcasters engage in critique and interrogation. They also engage in production of counter narratives, and they also encourage people to community action, sort of a praxis element of what they do. Those are actually three phases in a decolonization process writ large. So the fact that you have available media out there that cover all three phases, if a listener seeking to engage in decolonization for themselves, their communities, et cetera, listens broadly, they'll be able to pick up on these different areas of the decolonization process. And then finally, Nolan really brought to my attention this idea of, okay, well, what's the trap? And the trap is surveillance capitalism, data collection, what we've called the instrumentarian power of digital colonization. But we also have at the end of the book some answers. Unfortunately, a lot of those answers, which I know you'll want to ask us about, those answers are really based on legislation that's happened through the EU and in Canada. We do not yet have legislation that answers that problem of surveillance capitalism in the United States of America, and we're, we're pushing for that. 
We'll definitely want to get into that because the surveillance capitalism is obviously a huge problem outside of podcasting, in addition to podcasting, should I say. So in the introduction and in the beginning of the book, you all lay out the more the theoretical framework about decolonization, and you then later go through and cite certain types of podcasts. I think also one of the great things for people who are far less familiar with the diversity and complexity of the podcast universe, your book really... It's really a great laundry list of of places to go, people to check out, voices that you will not hear them in the corporate media generally. You don't see them in these kinds of more legacy media. Nolan, could you maybe talk to us about some of these, some of the examples that fit into the kind of framework that Nick Baham laid out for us? One of the things we discovered immediately was that a lot of the hosts actually came from or had a connection to legacy media. But a lot of them had, had, at one point in their career or another, demonstrated some viewpoint that was outside of acceptable discourse in legacy media. And so now they're not invited on at all. I'm immediately thinking of folks like Matt Taibbi, who was a constant guest in corporate media, lauded for his books on the financial collapse. But then all of a sudden, once he became critical of Democrats and Republicans, that was too much. He was operating outside of acceptable discourse. He wasn't fitting into the binary. And now he's huge in the podcasting space, but he's an invisible person that doesn't exist in corporate media. He's kind of a more extreme example, but we saw this with a lot of different folks. And that's, I think, illustrative of what's possible in the space. If you have views outside of legacy media, you will be welcomed into the podcasting space. To be frank, initially, when we sort of got into this project, I assumed like, okay, there are these issues that are important to small fragments of the larger sort of national or global audience, right? So everybody's going to have, I don't know, 300 people following their podcast or whatever. What we really didn't anticipate was we were writing this book in the moment of a great transformation that was taking place in media. Increasingly, these podcasts, including the decolonizing ones we were looking at, you know, they were drawing audiences you know, upwards of around like a million, which is what primetime shows were getting on like CNN and MSNBC. So, so we started to see that this, this competition. And what was interesting about it is they, they weren't trying to emulate legacy media. They were doing the exact opposite of legacy media. They were trying to find these more narrow and controversial topics. They often had titles that used language that you're not allowed to use on television. I'm thinking of podcasts like Guys We Effed, which uses the F word. That was the title of the podcast or my dad wrote a porno. We found a whole podcast that was dedicated to a, a married couple who were swingers and they talk about their escapades week by week. These folks talk for hours, sometimes two, three hours an episode and people tune in to listen. Where, where corporate media has always told us like, hey, your attention span's short. We gotta break down the global economic crisis in seven minutes with seven guests. Otherwise the public will tune out. Here you have people tuning in for you know three hours to break down like the day in the life of swingers. And it, and it really illustrated to us that the public had a, a yearning for something more. And I know this from my own personal experience. I was reflecting the other night that after working all day, at the end of the day, I was reading like I typically do. And then when I finish reading, I usually turn on the TV to find something kind of mindless to, to just tire me out so I can go to sleep. And I was spending, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes a night flipping channels or searching through Netflix because there's literally just nothing that I care about Meanwhile, in the podcasting space, I have the exact opposite problem. Like, oh, I want to listen to that. I want to listen to this. I want to listen to that. I want to listen to this. And so I, I think that that transformation is happening. And I feel like a lot of the audience that we saw like comments from and things like that, they illustrate that same change. You reminded me of Newton Minow, the FCC 
commissioner from the 60s talking about television as a, quote, vast wasteland. The technology with great promise that is turned into a commercial conduit for garbage. 500 channels and and nothing on that you want to see. And what's exciting about this medium of podcasting is that it didn't seem to have the same kind of restrictions of legacy media. Which brings us to an interesting sidebar. Podcasts, some of the most popular podcasts now, have far exceeded the legacy media, the corporate media, especially cable or network news. You know, Joe Rogan, for example, averages somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 million viewers, listeners, what have you, which is like more than all of the networks and cable combined. And so a lot of the corporate critiques of the more popular podcasts, they cherry pick certain things about those taboo third rail subjects that you're supposedly not allowed to discuss in a free society with a free press system somehow. Ha ha. But the real problem seems to be that the legacy media is sour grapes. They're upset because some of these podcasters are freewheeling and they're attracting the audience away from these legacy outlets where people are just frustrated. They're tired of this kind of he said, she said, faux journalism, distraction, division, etc. And you know, it does, it historically reminds me of the War of the Worlds broadcast, which was allegedly a hoax broadcast that people kind of knew about. But the legacy press at the time went all over radio as a new medium and uh, said, well, this is why radio is dangerous. It's propagandistic. It's irresponsible. I can't help but hear the same critiques of the podcasting universe now, especially about the podcast that you two write about in your book, right? It's, it's a it's a hot, it's it's like a panoply of things that that we all should be listening to, talking about, and thinking about, but the corporate media won't touch them with a ten foot pole. Nick Bayham. Well, one of the things I think that's really important with our podcasters is that most of them, we surveyed first of all, well over a hundred podcasts. Many of them, most of them, are responsible. They're responsible to their audiences. They're actually building community. A big part of a decolonizing podcast is about generating a a community. So whether that's a community of people who are interested in broader critiques of neoliberalism, maybe something that you get from the audience of Pitchfork Economics or Eat the Rich, or if it's self-evident Asian American stories where you're critiquing Orientalism, there's a, a community around that that they're responsive to, that they're connected to on social media, that they bring into the room. These podcasters are literally bringing activists from the community that they're responsible to into the radio room. So there's this seamless transition. And as we know with legacy media, they have a tendency when they report on news, this goes back to the very beginnings of legacy media, they have a tendency when they report on news in the community to look for experts who are not necessarily in the community and therefore not responsible to the community. You know, the typical thing you get on the news where there's a fire in your neighborhood and they'll, they'll go to one hysterical person in the crowd and then they'll go to the expert, Dr. So-and-so or, you know, whatever person who knows about fires in the hood or something like that. Well, that's what legacy media does. I think podcasting does the exact opposite of that, really bringing community actors and activists, people who are invested into the room. 
I think that's, again, a really prominent point, and I think we're going to come back to that after we take a quick break. I'd like to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are joined today in this segment by Professors Nicholas Baham III and Nolan Higdon. We are talking about their book, Podcaster's Dilemma. We'll continue our conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment, we are joined by Dr. Nicholas Bayham III, a professor of ethnic studies, California State University, East Bay. We are also joined by Nolan Higdon, an author and university lecturer of history and media studies. The book we're talking about today, The Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Era of Surveillance Capitalism, out on Wiley Blackwell, your new book together, now, Nick Baham, you made some fantastic points before the break about what is so different about what happens in the podcasting world versus legacy media. So I wanted to bring up another potential concern here. What do you see are the challenges now coming into the podcasting universe? You mentioned before that there are just so many things out there. It's, it's, it's an ever-expanding universe of possibility. And of course, while that has many positives, it also may have some negatives. We may have some needle in a haystack issues, hard to find certain things. But we also have the fear, speaking of decolonizing, we may have also the concern of a recolonizing, a co-optation. Nick, what do you see as, again, some of the challenges or trends going on in podcasting as the legacy media tries to recapture this lost audience? So while these decolonizing podcasters are engaged in a thorough form of deconstruction, so for example, while Jamel Hill is really challenging the false notion of the separation between popular culture, sports, and politics and race, or where, you know, the folks in uh, Danielle Smith in Black Girl Songbook is providing counter narratives about the importance of Black women composers, or, for example, where uh, someone like Latina Hot Wife Adventures is talking about non-monogamy in brown communities. At that same time, surveillance capitalists are mining your data as you're listening. So what they're doing is they're micro-targeting you, operationalizing your data, not only to predict your behavior, but now to direct your behavior. So while I may be innocently listening to a podcast about decolonizing my diet, for example, or my listening, or how I engage with sports media, I'm being directed in other ways, predictive ways, through manipulation of my data to purchase other things, to be directed in other areas. Because I fit a particular profile, for example, what kind of person listens to these sort of podcasts? What kind of car can you sell them? And these people can predict, if I'm listening to Royal Fetish Radio, people can predict through this data, what kind of vehicle I'm going to buy. Do I need an air conditioner? in my home during the summer, and also what other kinds of political media I can be directed towards as well. And that becomes a very dangerous thing, one that also threatens to continue to separate us 
and divide us within our society. There is a real threat here that the colonizing powers that be that see what's happening in this expanding universe of podcasting. As you mentioned in the book, there are a great many decolonizing podcasts, whether it's along race or neoliberalism and the many other isms that you all address in the book. And obviously we won't be able to get into all of them on the show today, which is why I hope people check out the book and actually read the book because it's just chock full of this kind of really important analysis and information. Do you see a danger, a threat of then co-opting or making performative this kind of thing, not just the digital surveillance, the monetization of it and the powers that be trying to break in on it to predict your behaviors and sell you a car. But what do you see, Nolan and or Nick or both of you, what do you see as some of the threats of the corporate legacy press trying to crib certain pieces or things that they see that look like they're working in in the podcasting world and then rendering them less politically effective taking like a historical lens which which we mentioned in in the book and, and i think it's the best way to kind of answer your your question mickey surveillance has been a mechanism of power privacy is usually a tool that especially vulnerable communities can use to organize resistance so when you think of like these things like free podcasting tools, or you can post your podcast for free, or you can record for free through this platform, none of it's really free. Just rather than cash out of your pocket, you're giving up data. And so given the fact that so many of the podcasters we surveyed come from vulnerable, historically marginalized and exploited communities, we were particularly concerned that you're using these platforms that are exploiting you and surveilling you to try and fight against these very forces that are exploiting you and surveilling you. And so we, this is the dilemma that we kind of pointed out in the book. It's not a knock on um, the podcasters at all. We just want to draw their attention to it. And in fact, you know, one of the reasons we wrote the book was to celebrate these podcasters and draw attention to this problem um, versus kind of um, wag our finger at these, these folks. To, to your question about where it's going, we write in the book about how much we are afraid of what Nick pointed out, the ways in which this data can be weaponized or operationalized to exploit these individuals and any individual on the internet for that matter um, further. There's a secondary concern that we talk about in the book that I think gets back to Mickey's question, which is the legacy media and the big corporations that control most of American media, now global media, they see podcasting as a threat. And the idea they're just going to roll over and play dead is extremely ignorant. Tim Wu has written about this, that throughout history, new mediums emerge and they offer interesting alternatives from organic grassroots media makers that draw massive audiences. Corporate media see those audiences. They try and step in and take over that space saying like, hey, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to do it better because we have money or further reach or better connections. And then it ends up getting sanitized and homogenized and pasteurized, and then audiences no longer interested. I'm not saying that for sure is going to happen with the podcasting. We do see some moves where that is occurring, like Spotify purchasing Joe Rogan is a big shift. Rogan's not everywhere. He's now on Spotify, and he has 11 million listeners. Also, we see a lot of these legacy media moving into the podcasting space. MSNBC is now putting Nicole Wallace in there to try and grab millennials because every millennial wants a farmer spokesperson from the Bush administration. And then we see these politicians like Barack Obama has a podcast, Hillary Clinton has a podcast, and on their fame and with the right publicity, they may draw audiences. And our, our concern is that once enough time is spent with those well-publicized podcasts, it may draw away from these others and it may change the ecosystem in some way. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen for sure, but that's a concern we raise in the book that we should be cognizant of. I'm glad you said what you said a moment ago, Nolan. This is not a finger wag book. It's a celebration 
of the many different voices that are out there that are now like more and more accessible, but it also has this cautionary tale to it. There's a lot of good things going on here to keep going, but there's also some things that we need to be careful about moving forward. Nick Mayhem, the last chapter of the book on recolonizing podcasts, moving beyond the frontiers of instrumentarianism. What does that mean exactly? And how, how does this fit into the conclusion of your book? Nolan and I developed a series of recommendations for how you could push back on the recolonization or neo-colonial acquisition of the digital space. And the first and foremost, and, and we're not alone in recommend, recommending this, certainly. Shoshana Zuboff has talked about this extensively. Authors like Christian Fuchs, Sophia Umoja Noble has, has written about this. Trust busting busting up the major corporate holders of digital media. Your Googles, your Facebooks, your Twitters, et cetera, need to be broken up. In effect, Facebook, I don't know if people have noticed this, but Facebook has essentially become a news organization or a news provider or some sort of a conduit or clearinghouse for presenting you with news based on, again, their surveillance of you, what you like what you express a dislike in. And the fact that they have all those little emojis that you can click on allows them to be fairly sophisticated in terms of understanding your behavior and your mood in relation to certain things. The other thing that we're recommending is legislatively, as a community, we push for something that is the equivalent of Canada's Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act. And what this does is this requires consent for access to all of our data, all of our personal data. It can't just be used. We have to give active consent and we have the right to change or eliminate any data. So that could be medical information that's floating out there, which as you know, can be very profitable as well. It can be what we have searched, et cetera, et cetera. Now the EU has something similar in the general data protection regulation, GDPR. We have nothing like this in the United States of America. So it is literally a wild west of data mining and data collection. That's pretty remarkable. And it doesn't take a, a vivid imagination to start wondering what's happening with all of this data and all of this information that we're giving in many cases. Now, you say without consent or without awareness of it. But again, and, and we've, again, all of us have all, long, long mentioned this, that Facebook isn't free. Social media isn't free. You're the cost, literally. You're literally feeding out this information that then will be turned around and used, in many cases, used against you or used to manipulate you. The book, The Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Era of Surveillance Capitalism. The authors, as well as my guests for today, were Professors Nicholas Baham III and Nolan Higdon. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us today, and best of luck supporting your new book. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians, because they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to The Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. 
We'll see you next time. Ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little boys in the weather.